Jen Walsh. Jen's part of your, or is in, you know, works with you in your team. Yeah, we're very lucky to have Jen Walsh. She, her official title is uh, volunteer coordinator. I guess her unofficial title is um, she's just a brilliant person. Yeah, she really is. And, and she, you know, you and her together have brought Room Sixty Four to life. And yeah, so proud of you guys. Great. And and the other interesting thing people need to know about Jen like myself is that she's a mad bulldog supporter <laughs> so we won't we won't launch into the song but uh so this conversation is going to be uh, with uh, jen walsh so enjoy i'm jen walsh and i'm the volunteer coordinator for the palliative care program here at barwin health Thanks so much for being here, Jen. It's fantastic. But just tell us a little bit then about what your role is and the components of your role. As a volunteer coordinator, I guess on the surface, it's the obvious things around recruiting a team of volunteers, placing them in their roles and all of that kind of stuff. But the deeper meaning, I guess, of the role is finding the right people who want to donate their time, their energy, their emotion, um, and matching them up with a patient who would benefit in some way. So what does that actually mean? Um, Who's the person? What kind of needs do they have? And then do we have a volunteer who can help meet that? So it could be um, we had somebody who really wanted to learn how to make cheese. We happen to have a volunteer who could do that. Now, that doesn't sound like much, possibly, learning to make cheese, but for that person, she didn't want to engage in conversations about death and dying. She didn't want to accept where she was at with her illness, but she wanted to make cheese. And so to have a volunteer who's non-clinical, who's non-medical come in and provide that kind of support kind of opened the door that then the medical folks could get in, the social worker could get in, the nurse could get in. Um, so I think the, the volunteers provide a wide variety of skills and experiences, but most of them also come with a personal experience with death and dying, which is why I often have a hard time even defining what my role is. Is It's taking this dynamic group of people who have experienced death and dying more often than not and matching them up with somebody who would benefit from their, their time. I just I love that flow of who is the individual, what, what's important to them, what matters most to them, what does that look like and how that sort of seamlessly the medical side of things can work, work in there. Yeah, and I think we've taken a really different approach to managing a volunteer team here in palliative care. It used to be very, a very structural thing. You had a role. So you were a companionship volunteer, a respite volunteer. You had a role, and you were in that box. And I think now the job I do is all about relationship management, not really coordinating volunteers. It's, it's building a relationship with a volunteer to know what are all of those weird and wonderful things that they can do and want to do, and then matching them up with a patient. So no longer are we really saying, oh, this volunteer has a set role. It's their palliative care volunteer, and they can help somebody tell their life story. Um, They can help them make cheese. And exactly like you're saying, it opens the door for some people who don't want to talk about death and dying, but they'd be keen for a visitor to pop in. And I also think gone are the days of thinking of kind of a stereotypical, you know, kind of the air quotes around a volunteer is a late-aged retiree who who stuffs envelopes. You know, I think there's kind of this perception still in our community about what volunteering is, whereas we've got volunteers with a huge age range and a huge amount of skills. It just happens to be that we don't pay them. 
So, you know, they are journalists and social workers and counselors and absolutely everything in between. It's just we don't pay them to do this work. Um, And like I get a sense that that's just not your role. I think all of the team in this place, you know, in the Barwon Health Palliative Care team, I think they're all interested in who's the person. And and my reflection on that is, again, around, you know, surprise, surprise, the Western Bulldogs. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it it was very clear to anyone that came into Room 64 that my mum was a Western Bulldog supporter. And I, you know, the doctor would come and see my mum every every day. Very seldom did he talk to her about anything medical. Mm-hmm. He would come in and talk to her about the Western Bulldogs. And, you know, on a Monday would come in and talk to her about how did they go on the weekend, Evelyn, you know? And that made such a difference to her because he was talking to her about something that she loved rather than trying to talk to her about medical things, which she wasn't remotely interested in. So I think that as a team, as a group of people, the the Barwon Health Palliative Care team get that. They get the importance of who's the person. It makes a huge difference. And they do, when when the team puts in a referral to request a volunteer, they do a really good job with that stuff because they'll give me the basic name, phone number type of assistance that that person needs, but they'll try to slip in as much of that kind of who is the person information that they can. So it'll be, you know, they, they're a retired school teacher or they're an avid Bulldog supporter, whatever the case may be, they'll, they'll try to get a little bit of that human element as well because it helps me do my job better to, to find, you know, who's going to be the right person to have conversations about that shared interest or whatever it might be. Do you think that given that uh, this program's within the you know the Barwon Health and Barwon region, mm. we're uh, we're going to cop a bit of flack because we're talking <laughs> about the Western Bulldogs and not uh, and not Geelong cats? Quite possible. It's it's worth mentioning the cats have the cats have been amazing when there have been you know it, it's it's. Not surprising, a lot of our patients are cat supporters, and the cats have really um, been amazing when different patients have had, you know, essentially their kind of bucket list thing is to meet a player or to get to a game or whatever. Um, The cats have been great because they are such a community team. Um, And I also think it's great to kind of ruffle the feathers and have a room filled with Western Bulldogs gear. Um, But you're right, you know, like I I just remember um, the stories about your mom in terms of them knowing her made such an impact on her sense of dignity. So singing the song to her when doing some of those personal care things that she wanted nothing to do with, by packaging that through something she loved, I think helped her maintain her dignity. And I think at the end of the day, that's what we're trying to do, is if we can see the person, we can help maintain their dignity so that they don't become kind of just something caught up in this medical system and the bricks and mortar, that they're a human and they have a family who loves them. I grew up in a really strong religious household and a strong kind of church community. And my mom actually played a real role around kind of that providing meals for people when they were ill or when somebody in the family had died. So I think my probably first memory or kind of exposure to death was that, was my mom staying up late coordinating all the casseroles. Um, And then I guess in terms of death actually kind of coming into our home, then when I was just about to turn 10, I came downstairs one morning and all of the women from church were there with the casseroles. And so I think 
for me, that was a really tangible thing. It was really that who died. And it was my dad who had died overnight. And so it's interesting that, again, you, you look at things through a little kid's perspective, I mean, a 10-year-old's perspective, that to me, ladies from the church and casseroles meant somebody's died. Um, but I was, I have a lot of memories of all of those euphemisms and all that kind of stuff that people say because they're trying to make you feel better. Um, and my brother copped a lot of it as well, so he was a couple years older than me. And there were so many people saying, you know, well, you're the man of the household now. And he was like, oh, I'm a 13-year-old boy. Like, I'm not the man of the household. Um, but we just got a lot of all, all that kind of language about um, your dad's in a better place now. It was like, well, rubbish. He was 47. He had two kids and a wife and a house and a pretty happy life. I don't think he's in a better place. Um, so it's interesting because my... Um, my partner's also experienced death in her family, and then we, she had a friend whose brother had just died, and we were all kind of sitting around in a pub. And for some reason, that conversation of all those euphemisms came up, and we were just, you know, having a good laugh at all the stupid things people say around, you know, in a better place, or God only takes the best, um, or he passed away. I mean, we could make uh, a we could make a list for days, and I think having a, a drink and joking about the stupid things that people said, but amongst three people who had experienced a real loss of a loved one, I think was one of the most healing experiences because we just named it. We didn't kind of tiptoe around it. We named that we loved somebody who died, and then we laughed at the cost of people who weren't comfortable talking about that. But it was almost, we kind of found our tribe of like, these these are people who can relate and we can have an honest conversation because I, I almost feel like when people are being sensitive and trying to protect you, you almost shift into this mode of protecting them. So like if they've used that language to you, you almost then are almost making them feel better. Whereas I find it really helpful if somebody just uses the direct language. And that's probably now what I do back to people is I almost use the direct language and then I gauge off of them like, oh, nope, they're not, <laughs> they're not in a place to use that word. So I'll, I'll then use more passive language. But I think just letting the person who's actually in the middle of it guide the language yeah. is really important. The two big things for me was uh, you've lost your mum or she's passed on and uh, she's in a better place. And the other one that uh, was she's had a good innings. Well, sorry. I don't care how long. My, my mum was 100 when she died. Yep, she'd lived a long life, but that didn't make it any easier for me. I wanted her back, and uh, I just wanted her to live forever. So uh, telling me that uh, she'd had a good innings was not what I wanted to hear at all. <laughs> Shifting the conversation around death and dying, it'll make a difference. Just thinking about Room 64 and like for me when, you know, when your mom was in here, it was an interesting balance because I'm here working and then I'd scurry across the car park to Room 64 to see somebody I really love and care about. But there was, there was almost this language from people around like, how do you know a hundred year old? And it's almost, I think people needed to figure out my relationship to figure out just how impacted I might be, if that makes sense. So there was a little of like, also with, you know, I'm clearly from another country. So there was that sense of like, how do you, the American, with the Aussie mate, know the 100-year-old Scottish lady in room 64? And I almost felt like 
either I would just walk away and not bother, or there was this sense of kind of almost having to defend, like having a relationship with this person who I really cared about. And it's back to that letting people guide language. Like if somebody is important to somebody else, I think that's okay. I think it's okay to, to cry. I think it's okay to grieve for them. Um, you know, and your mom adopted us as if we were family when we moved over here. And so it was a loss when she died. It's something that I think I kept noticing, like, you know, I'd have days where I would come back and probably just be a little more affected and then try to, like, you know, sit at a desk and do a job. But there was kind of that sense of, like, it wasn't, there was almost that, like, oh, she's not your nan, (laughs) as if somehow that meant it would mean something different or less than. It, It almost felt like people were trying to figure out what level of support they might want to then offer next. It's almost like people need to really understand the connection in order to know how much they think you're affected or how much you need or want support. I don't know. And it's, you know, for, for me, I have no living grandparents and here's this beautiful woman who just kind of took in these two stragglers who moved over here. Um, and yeah, just adopted us, loved us as a couple, just was really, I don't know, blindly welcoming to us as long as we showed up for cups of tea. That experience of coming down the stairs and seeing the woman with the casseroles in your house, um, was it was it literally that sudden? Was your dad, yeah. your dad hadn't been sick? Or? No, no, unexpected heart attack. And I, I mean, I think I was lucky in the sense that I slept through the whole thing, ambulance coming to the house. So that was my first exposure. And my brother was actually away for the evening, so I think my mom had made a conscious choice of kind of, you know, Wait till he wakes up and comes home. Wait till I wake up so she could talk to us both. How did, how did she handle that? How did she approach it? I, I don't really remember. And again, this is where it's interesting having a, a 10-year-old's memory that I now try to recount at nearly 40. Is I almost have these pictures in my head of her sitting us down and just explaining that he died in the ambulance. But it just didn't make any sense. It was so out of nowhere, and he wasn't unwell. And, and it's interesting going back kind of to euphemisms. Is there, were, there were people who would say, well, at least it was quick and sudden, and he didn't have a long cancer journey. But then other people would say, you know, I don't know. It was just this weird, again, packaging it up around, aren't you lucky that this is how your dad died? It's like, not really. As a kid, and, you know, you're selfish when you're a kid, it was three days before my birthday. I was so excited to turn 10. And there was almost this kind of immature selfish sense of well this is ruined my birthday my last week of school all of those things that are really important to you when you're nine ten and I think all of a sudden my mom who had been a stay-at-home mom for most of our well probably our whole lives all of a sudden was in this position of I have to tell the kids but I also have to figure out what life looks like now I do remember that my mom got a lot of guidance from others around the fact that it would be important for us to see his body. And again, I think not knowing what to do with kids. And I think that was probably a good thing. She got some guidance saying, like, we needed to have an open casket because kids need to actually have that tangible connection to death. Um, I do remember being told that at the time and being like, "Uh -uh. Um, (laughs) uh-uh, you know, I don't want to see this. But I think it probably was the right choice. So it was, yeah, the, the wake, the funeral, and, and with the American system, like it was in the middle of the year, so for us it was the end of school year. So I just have these kind of vague memories of, you know, kind of going back to school one more time, 
but then that being really uncomfortable because it's a class full of 10 year olds who don't know what to say, which goes back to everything we've talked about. Kids don't understand death. Kids don't know how to talk about death. And then when you're the kid experiencing it, you go back to school and you're a bit of a social pariah because nobody wants to talk to you. I think in terms of what matters most is who is the person on our program, not who's the patient, who's the di- you know what's the diagnosis, how old are they, but who are they, who's their family structure around them, and I think the the more we know that, the better we can provide care for them. So, who is that person who is in our program? 